Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through verse 4. You may have been noticing this in the bulletin, the insert in the bulletin uh, over the last couple weeks. We've been including in here some discussion questions. Uh, We really want to encourage you to uh, discuss the sermon and, and what the Lord is showing you uh, in your marriages, but then also in your families, and maybe even something as, as simple as whoever's, obviously not the driver, but whoever's riding in the front seat can ask the family those questions on the way home. We want to really be encouraging us to have a congregation where our families are talking about the gospel. Matthew chapter 8 will be in verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> And when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed and Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you do the work of enlightening our hearts in this moment? Bring that illumination by the divine light that we might see him. And as we see him, that we might not only believe, but we might be transformed. Lord Jesus, it is you who we have come to hear from and who we've come to see. And we are asking that you would do whatever it takes to convince us of the great and wonderful grace that is to be found in you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. What is it that transforms people from the worst sins to actually walking in true holiness? Henry Venn was a pastor many years ago, and he was once approached by a neighboring pastor in his town. And this neighboring pastor said, Mr. Venn, I don't know how it is, but I should really think that the doctrines that you teach about grace and faith, that Really, they were all calculated to make your hearers just live in sin. But yet, I must acknowledge that there is an astonishing reformation that is happening in your parish. Whereas for me, I don't believe I ever made one soul better, even though I've always been telling them what their duty is for many years. What this neighboring minister was asking Uh, Reverend Venn about is how in the world is that your doctrines of free grace in Jesus Christ that seems to be where it would make people want to just live in their sin how is it that that transforms people but this other guy saying but for me in my ministry when I'm focusing mainly on telling people what to do how is it that they're not transformed by that because here is something we must remember about the gospel The gospel of God's grace is his power to transform people into true holiness. That's how he does it. 
It is not by law alone that he transforms people. It's not by us saying, I must do this, I must be this. That is not how we are transformed. It's by seeing who Jesus is that we are transformed. It does result in holy living, but we must get the order right. God's plan for transforming people, God's message for furthering his mission, It is the message of pure, utter, free grace in Jesus Christ. Amen? And that's what we see in this text this morning. We see in this text this morning that Jesus is more willing to cleanse you than you are willing to be cleansed by him. I'll say it again. Jesus is more willing to cleanse you, to forgive you, to clothe you in his righteousness than you are willing to receive those things from him. We often think that God is a stingy God, but you won't find that here. And this is the God of the Bible that we are confronted with. Look back at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, or really, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Here's what we see about Jesus. Jesus is the lawgiver. How do we know that? Well, What happened in the three chapters in Matthew right before this? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It shows the very famous section of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, whether this event happened literally right after Jesus came down from the mountain, uh, it's a little unclear because Matthew orders a lot of his gospel uh, in themes. But regardless, what we see here is that Matthew is wanting us to interpret this real historical event in light of what just happened on the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what we need to remember about Jesus. Jesus is the lawgiver. And that means that if Jesus is the lawgiver, then he must be holy. We see at the very beginning of verse 1, Jesus comes down from the mountain. What was What was the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, actually, you see it in chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus tells all these people, he says, if if you're going to be saved, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is this. It is to crush every single one of us and to let everyone be asking the question, who can be saved? That's the point. None of us in here can obey the Sermon on the Mount. We are all crushed. And we are all sinners. And only Christ can fulfill the Sermon on the Mount. Amen? That's the whole point. It is going to be a guide to how we live the Christian life. Absolutely. But it is first something that crushes us to show us our need of Christ. He says that if you're going to be saved, you must be perfect. But here's the thing, you're not. I'm not. We must look to him who is. Jesus is the perfect one. He is the holy one. 
He is God in our flesh. And that's what the law is showing us. It's showing us God's holiness. It's showing us God's holy standard. God's law is perfect. It demands entire obedience of the utmost perfection. God's law forbids even the smallest degree of sin. And it's not merely talking about our actions, but God's law is very clearly seen in the Sermon on the Mount. It addresses your thoughts, your desires, and your sinful nature. It shows us that God's law is not merely to be kept, but it is to be holy and entirely loved and promoted. None of us live up to that standard. Matter of fact, as we realize what God's law is really saying, we will echo with Paul what he says in Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All of us have a major predicament. And it is the most important predicament in the world. And it's either dealt with by running to Jesus. Or it's dealt with by eternal hell. That sounds harsh, but it's the most true thing that there is. You and I have broken God's law and we stand condemned. We need salvation. And it reminds us of the question in Psalm 24 verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can except Jesus Christ. You and me cannot earn our salvation. We can't contribute to it. It is either holy Jesus or nothing. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is showing us. And if Jesus is the lawgiver, then we must realize that he is the holy one. He is God. But we do need to remember, what do we mean by holy? To be holy means to be utterly pure. Holiness is the absence of all imperfections, at least in the sense of God's holiness. It's the absence of all imperfections, and it's him who infinitely overflows with all righteousness. It's not merely saying that God is not a sinner, but that positively he is overflowing with all goodness. It's kind of like this. You take this cup, and if you put this cup at the very bottom of the ocean, could we say that this cup is filled with water? Well, yes, absolutely it's filled with water. But it is far and away overflowing with water. When we say God is holy, and when we realize that God is infinite, we do not mean that he merely measures up to a certain level of holiness. He overflows in holiness. He is the transcendent one. He is utterly cut away from all sin, suffering, and imperfection. 
God, as Sinclair Ferguson says, God is entirely devoted to himself. You need to realize this. God cannot break the first commandment. First commandment is that you shall have no other gods before me. God is utterly devoted to himself. It is always about his glory, and he better be about his glory first and foremost, or else he's not God. Because even God cannot have any other gods above himself. So what do we mean by unholiness? What does it mean when scripture says we are unholy? It means that we have failed to be devoted to God. It means that we have treated something or someone else as God. And we know that the penalty of this is death, which is the ultimate realization of being cut off from God. Literally, this is why there was the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament, because it was there to answer the question, how can sinners be in the presence of God? But, you know, that's not a question that we often ask today, because today, the God that we often picture is a God who is like a cute little teddy bear that, of course, he loves us, because why wouldn't he love us? We're so amazing and so incredible. But that's not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of reality. The God of reality is utterly holy, utterly pure, utterly righteous, and we are sinners, and we sinned against him. That's a major problem. It's a life and death problem. And Jesus is that God. And he has declared that every single one of us stand condemned. Jesus is so much God in our flesh that if we ever wondered what holiness would have looked like embodied, we don't need to wonder because it's him. And in light of Jesus being who he is, in light of him giving this Sermon on the Mount, a leper comes to him. Now, I love to say this, it's not a leopard, it's not an animal, it's a leper. Leprosy is something a leper would have had. Leprosy, especially then, it's a little bit different than what we understand it now. It was a far more incurable disease. It would have been an unhealable skin disease. And uh, it was thought to be very contagious in those days. So often what would happen is if you had leprosy, you were exiled from the community and you were put in these villages to get away from the healthy people lest you contaminate them. What's interesting is that you see that great crowds were following Jesus. Probably when it uses the word great, it means a couple thousand. And so you would say, how in the world could someone like this get so easily access to Jesus? Well, here's why. Because a leper, whenever he would be around people, he would go around shouting, unclean, unclean, and people would part like the Red Sea because they didn't want to be contaminated. And so imagine as Jesus is coming down from the mountain and as he's with this great crowd of people and as Jesus is maybe talking with people or walking and you could just hear this commotion in the background and these echoes of unclean, unclean, and you see chaos happening and people parting away and here comes this one guy with a very clear illness 
imagine what it must have been like experientially for people with leprosy to have to always, whenever you would go out in public, to have to pronounce, I am unclean all the time. Actually, maybe some of you really know what that feels like because maybe you don't publicly announce it, but you think it everywhere you go. But whenever there was leprosy, whenever there was uncleanness in the Old Testament, Leviticus 5 verse 6 says that the only solution for this would be atonement. One person says the answer to this leprosy was not physical hygiene or taking a bath. It was atonement. And here is something we need to realize today because though we might not have physical leprosy, we have spiritual leprosy of the heart. Sin and unholiness. And our primary problem today, the heart of our problem today is the problem of our heart. Our primary problem is our sinful heart. We don't really like to talk about sin today. We, we like to label it as all these other things. But the Bible is very clear that sin is everyone's primary problem. And the solution to sin is not and will never be self-esteem. It will not be self-forgiveness. It will not be a victimhood mentality. It is only and always Jesus Christ. Because only in Him can sin be dealt with. Now one thing that's interesting about this leprosy for this man is that it wasn't absolutely clear, but certainly in Old Testament context, oftentimes uh, we see that people thought that if you had leprosy, then it was because of some very grievous sin in your life. Actually, in Numbers chapter 12, we see Miriam, who contracts leprosy in direct correlation to her sin. So here's what I'm trying to say. When everyone would have seen this leper, they would not have merely seen a physical disease. They would have seen that this is a walking embodiment of sin. That's what they would have thought. This leprosy would have kept this man from attending the temple and worshiping God. It would have kept him from relationships. It would have kept him from having any assurance that God could possibly love him. One author says, Jewish tradition compared leprosy with the uncleanness of death. And some later teachers attributed leprosy to the leper's sin, especially the sin of slander. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, says, Sin is the leprosy of the soul. It shuts out from communion with God. And that's the only way we can be restored. It is necessary that we be cleansed from this spiritual leprosy. And this ought to be our great concern. What I fear very greatly today in modern Christianity and even in reformed circles. I fear that the message that is most often being promoted and what is most often being embraced is not that. Is not the message of sin is our greatest problem, but we think as long as I just have a peace of mind and good self-esteem, I fear that that is what is happening on the, the wide scale. And what happens there is that Jesus then becomes an assistant to my peace of mind rather than a savior who can save me from my wretchedness. My friends, your biggest need is Jesus Christ. 
And we are unapologetic about that. That's actually the most loving thing we can say. Your biggest need is Jesus Christ because you and I, we are unholy in ourselves and we are sinners. And we need someone who can save us. This leper would have been cut off from attending the temple where he might worship God. And here is the great providence and even great irony here. Because we read in John chapter 1 that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt literally means he tabernacled among us. What scripture is very clearly saying is that the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, even the Garden of Eden itself, it's looking forward to Christ who is the true temple of God. Here is the irony here. This leper who was totally cut off from attending the temple during the day is approaching the true temple of God. Notice this guy's posture. He kneels before him. You see, humility. Notice how he addresses Jesus. He calls him Lord, not merely teacher. Notice what he believes. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I trust that you have the power, you have the sovereignty, you have the ability. That's not the part I'm doubting. When he asked Jesus to cleanse him, he's asking not merely for healing, but healing in such a way so that he can be restored to God's covenant people so that he can worship his creator. That's what it would have meant for him. But notice what he doubts. And this is the part that I really want to zoom in on. He says, if you will. If you will. Really, what that could be translated as is, Lord, if you are willing. I trust that you have the power and the authority and the sovereignty, but I'm struggling to believe that you want to do this. Are you graciously willing to restore me into your presence? Are you graciously willing to forgive me and cleanse me? Isn't that the question we all really ask? It's not always the hardest thing, although it always takes faith to believe it, but it's not always the hardest thing for the Christian to uh, believe in God's sovereignty or his power. What we often, though not always, what we often struggle with is, is he willing? Does he want to? And here's the thing. What does it matter if God has all the ability and all the authority, but if he doesn't have the willingness to do it? What does it matter? This guy would have been so used to his whole life, whenever, at least as long as he had leprosy, nobody was willing to help him. Nobody was willing to draw near to him. That was just a problem some other people would have to take care of. They didn't have time for it. And so he certainly expresses those sinful doubts to Jesus. That's what we all struggle with when we realize that God is holy. 
when we actually really begin to come to grips with how holy and righteous and just God is, the question we often ask in that moment is, is he willing to forgive my sins? You struggle with that? This is exactly what Satan wants us to doubt. I think it's very important that we become very aware of how Satan tempts us to doubt God's grace. This is what you and I will be tempted with this week. You will be tempted to doubt God's grace for you this week. It's happening right now. And Paul tells us to put on the armor of God. We're in a fight. These are our barracks, and we're going out to fight. You will be attacked, and where Satan loves to attack is here. Is Jesus enough for you? That's the heart of his attack. Satan loves to frighten and depress us. Martin Luther says, this is a sign by which we may recognize him. He always leaves a foul odor. That is, he creates a timid, frightened, and troubled conscience. Maybe you've felt this struggle of really doubting whether Christ is willing to forgive you, and you're often hounded by a general sense of your sinfulness. Or maybe even you're, you're crushed by a particular sin in your present or your past. Oftentimes, whenever we struggle with such spiritual warfare, it can, uh, it can plague us to, to such levels that we do this thinking called false extremes, as one author says. This is what we mean by false extremes. It means this. Whenever you have, for instance, one sinful thought during worship, you automatically conclude the worst possible outcome. Like, I must not be a believer at all. Or we have this thinking called, it's, some people call it false filter. And we picture Jesus as only and always going on a sin hunt with us. He's only and always just pointing out the ways in which we fail. We also develop this mindset at times called false mind reading. And we often picture Jesus as someone who hates us or despises us rather than simply taking him at his word. We are often intimidated to come to Jesus with all of our cares and concerns and even the sins that we have because we think that when we come to him, he'll do us harm. We think he's just going to rake us over the coals. Or maybe he promises salvation to us. Oh yeah, I'll save you by grace. But then once he brings you in, he just really roughs you up because he's got to make you right. Another author says one, one thing that can happen in this season of intense spiritual warfare is that we develop a false lens. He says, despite having received forgiveness from God, we tend to focus on our sins from the distant past in a way that leads to continued feelings of guilt, self-condemnation, and fear of punishment. In other words... Often what Satan loves to get us to do is he wants us to depend upon our emotions and feelings rather than God's word. Do you guys feel that? And by the way, 
that's kind of the normative Christian experience. You will go through those seasons. Not always, but often. And you're not going crazy. Can we just say that? And often whenever we're in those seasons for so long, here's, here's how it leaves us feeling and experiencing life. We feel utterly crushed, very despairing, if not full-on depression. Lots of spiritual anxiety, certainly inner turmoil. Sometimes, truly, and I've, I've felt like this, and I've talked with many other people who feel like this, you really wonder, am I going insane? You feel so hounded about your own sins. Even small decisions can become colossal mistakes. Your past is haunting and everything about the future feels daunting. Your thoughts are so chaotic that it feels like flying debris during a tornado that causes such damage. You feel like you're constantly wrestling with God and wrestling in your conscience. You feel God's dark cloud looming overhead like that Charlie Brown rain cloud that's with you wherever you go. You live in what-if land and you're anticipating the worst. You think that because of this that maybe you've lost your salvation. You think that God's out to get you. Or you're restless because you can never do enough or feel sorry enough or repent enough. You get little comfort from Bible reading or prayer. And even when one person reminds you of God's grace, you can leave that meeting feeling great and then just give it a couple of hours and you fall back into that despair. Sometimes we even say, is this Christianity thing even working? You're exhausted from trying so many of these different strategies. And even this, maybe even death is a welcomed option. If you're experiencing these things, this never means that that means you're an unbeliever. We have scripture testimony, 2,000 years of church history, and countless people in the, presence, in the present who go through experiences like this, and they are God's children. Amen? You have to remember that you're always being attacked all the time by what we can call the unholy trinity. The world, your own sinful flesh, and the devil. It's never only one. It's always all three, all at the same time. One might be more evident at the time, but it's always all three. And it's in those situations that when we so much struggle to believe in Christ's willingness to cleanse us, that we fall into despair. But we have to remember what this text is telling us. That Jesus is more willing to cleanse you than you are willing to be cleansed by him. Amen? Now, here's the thing. You're not going to feel that all the time. <laughs> you have to tell yourself that all the time. And you need a community of believers who will tell you that all the time. And sometimes even wrestle that into you at times. <laughs> Because this is the reality of Scripture. It's so utterly clear. He says right there, look at verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And notice the first words he says, I will. And literally in the Greek it means I am willing. 
not just simply I'm going to do an act. My heart is more willing to cleanse you than you are willing to be cleansed by me. Amen? He's willing. Jesus is the lawgiver and he is holy. And because of that, it shows us he's the Lord and he is also loving. We have to be reminded, actually, you have to put your Old Testament hats on for a second. Remember a time in the Old Testament when Moses was up on the mountain and he was confronted with God and he came down from the mountain and his face shone. His face was reflecting the glory of God. Here's kind of a cool thought. What do you think is going to happen in the presence of God himself with someone who has a skin disease? Isn't that cool? Jesus is God's holiness and love embodied. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says, talking about what holiness is. Too often, this is my words, too often we pit, we say either God is holy or he's loving, but he is always who he is, therefore he is holy and he is loving all the time. Sinclair Ferguson says, in a sense, holiness is a way of describing love. To say that God is love and that God is holy is ultimately pointing to the same reality. Holiness is the intensity of the love that flows between the, in the very being of God between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is holy love. Amen? Matthew Henry again says, we must rest ourselves upon his power. We must be confident of this, that Christ can make us clean. No, great, no guilt is so great, but that there is sufficiency in his righteousness to atone for it. My friends, you can never want salvation more than Jesus wants to give it to you. Amen? You can never want to know his love more than he wants you to know it. Amen? He is love. A love that Jesus, his first words are saying, I am willing. In other words, if he wants this guy to know something above all, yes, this is a miracle. Yes, it shows my authority. Yes, I am God in the flesh. All those different things. But if you're going to know something first and foremost right now, you need to know my willingness. That I am willing to save sinners. Amen? It means that Jesus has a desire to do this. It means he's inclined to this. It means he has the heart for this. And even grammatically here, the way it's structured, it's putting the emphasis here. I love what Dane Ortland says. And what did Jesus do when he saw the unclean people? What was his first impulse when he came across prostitutes and lepers? He moved toward them. Pity flooded his heart, the longing of true compassion. He spent time with them. He touched them. Remember, if someone was unclean and if you touched them, you had the guilt transferred to you. 
You did not touch unclean people, especially lepers. Not merely for fear of getting the disease, but you would get the guilt. And you would be barred from the temple. Why does Jesus touch this man? You know, in other places, when Jesus sees, actually, he sees uh, a group of lepers. And from afar, he just says, go and you'll be healed. And they are. Why does he touch this man? Remember what this man is struggling with most. I trust that you're able, but I'm just not sure if you're willing. Jesus is not merely using words, but his body language, his physical presence is saying, here's how willing I am, I will touch you. And this guy's probably not felt a human touch in years. Guys, we can never overestimate how willing Jesus is to cleanse and forgive sinners. Amen? Isn't it interesting that whenever we see Jesus in the Gospels, he's kind of like a salmon swimming upstream. So often you see people who are running away from sinners trying to separate themselves from sinners. Jesus is like that salmon swimming upstream just so that he can get to them. I love what the Puritan Thomas Goodwin says, Christ is love covered over in, in flesh. <laughs> Again, Dane Ortland says, if compassion clothed itself in a human body and went walking around this earth, what would it look like? We don't have to wonder, because it's him. Jesus, when he touches the leper, he knows what he's doing. He knows that if he's going to cleanse this man, if he's going to forgive this man, he must take the guilt. You realize that, right? Every time when you see Jesus forgiving someone, he is making an active decision to say, I will be their atonement. I will be their substitute. I will go to the cross and take God's wrath so that they will not have to take it. It's either them or it's me. There's no in between. Jesus is making the conscious decision to say, I will be treated as if I deserve to be cut off from God above all. And my friends, if you come to Jesus Christ, you're no longer cut off from him. You are so restored to him and brought into his presence that you could not possibly be closer to him. Amen? What we see here is a Jesus who is so eager that he cannot exaggerate it how possibly eager he is to forgive sinners and to cleanse them and to clothe them in his righteousness. And don't you long for that? The Word of God says it right here. The Word of God is telling you right now, even with your doubts, telling you Jesus Christ is willing to cleanse you even though you think at times you want it more than Him. But you can't. You can't want it more than Him. That's what Christmas is all about, by the way. Because if God took on flesh to be amongst us, can we ever doubt his willingness? Dr. 
J. Wilbur Chapman was once struggling this, with this concept. Uh, or he had a congregant, excuse me, he was struggling with this concept. And this congregant was a professor of mathematics. And this guy, this professor, his life had been ruined by sin. And, but he had come to Christ through Dr. Chapman's preaching. And one Sunday, as Dr. Chapman was speaking to a, a group of men... He was quoting Psalm 103, verse 12, which says that God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. So Dr. Chapman turned to the professor and he said, Professor, that is a mathematical proposition for you. How far is the distance from east to west? (laughs) The professor reached out for his pencil and notebook to make the calculation. And then suddenly he stopped. And he burst into tears. And facing the group, he said, men, you can't measure it. For if you put your stake here, and east be ahead of you, and west be behind you, you can go all the way around the world and come back to this stake, and east will still be ahead of you, and west will still be behind you. The distance is immeasurable. That is Jesus Christ for you. Amen? Jesus longs for you, and especially you, to come to him with everything you have. And to receive the fullness of his atonement, the fullness of his righteousness, the fullness of his forgiveness, all for free. Is that not an amazing gospel? It's actually what the table reminds us of. How willing is Christ to convince you that he loves you, that he forgives you. He's so eager that you get the preached word every week. Matter of fact, you get it numerous times a week. That's why we have the means of grace throughout the week multiple times. That's why he gives us the supper over and over and over again. He's constantly billboarding before you. I am willing, just come to me. Amen? My friends, what sin of yours could possibly match up to his infinite grace? What doubts of yours could possibly turn away his endless love? What moments from your past could possibly be too much for him to freely forgive? What ongoing battles against sin could possibly forfeit his covenant of grace with you? It's all a rhetorical question. Nothing can. Let me leave you with one last story. Walter Marshall, who wrote uh, one of the best books on sanctification called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. In his earlier years before he wrote that book, he, he had been wrestling with this question and he had great distress about the state of his soul his conscience was plagued with so much guilt even though he was a believer he had such a dread of divine displeasure and felt like he was never doing enough and his heart was often filled with very bitter anguish and a lot of you know what that feels like finally he went to another puritan pastor by the name of thomas goodwin and dr goodwin told him You have forgotten the greatest of all your sins. It's the sin of unbelief in his grace. 
in refusing to believe in Christ and rely on his atonement and righteousness, you have tried to find acceptance by yourself rather than God. My friends, when you are so wrestling with the state of your soul, what you need to be reminded of most is this. Your first duty is to believe in his grace. Amen? And his grace is for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would convince us, that you do all that it takes to convince us of your willingness, to convince us of your grace. It is so often so difficult to remember, so difficult to believe, but we trust that your word declares it and therefore it is always the reality for those who belong to Jesus. So help us to rest assured in that salvation. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.